Hello, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks for joining us for the latest episode of A Full Comet. Please consider subscribing to the podcast if you haven't already. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh have brokered a deal to form a coalition that guarantees the Liberals stay in power until at least 2025. Oops, my bad, I misspoke. They say you're not allowed to call it a coalition. We've got to use its technical name, a supply and confidence agreement. And we'll break down the details of that in a bit. But whatever you call it, what does it really mean? What are its implications? Trudeau and Singh say it means all of your progressive dreams will now come true. But the conservative opposition say it's a power grab that leads to backdoor socialism. Our guest today says that what it could be is something even worse than a coalition and potentially even more damaging to our democracy. Howard Anglin has reflected a lot on these sorts of issues over the years in his capacity as a postgraduate researcher at Oxford University, a lawyer who has worked all around the world, and most relevant to our discussion today as Deputy Chief of Staff to Prime Minister Stephen Harper and Principal Secretary to Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. Howard Anglin joins us now. Howard, great to have you on the show. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you very much for having me. You wrote an article about this situation in The Hub, and you mentioned in this article that this could be a scenario worse than a coalition. What did you mean by that? It's a good question. Um, And answering it, I think, takes us um, to the heart of how the parliamentary system works uh, in Canada. But obviously, we get our system from the Westminster system in the United Kingdom. Um, And the system in its current form goes back about 200 years. And at its core is a principle called responsible government. Uh, and responsible government is a very, a lot has been written about it. It can get very complex when you get into the weeds, but at its core, it is the principle that the Queen's ministers are not just responsible to the Queen, to the Crown, but they are also responsible to the elected members of Parliament. And we can get into how that works both in theory and in practice, and um, I think it's very it's very important to get into that to understand why uh, why I say that this could be worse. But the simple answer is responsible government rests on the accountability of the government, the cabinet, the ministers, uh, the people who sit around the table with Justin Trudeau and Justin Trudeau himself every day, being accountable to Parliament, and that accountability is enforced through the threat of non-confidence votes, where parliament at any point can vote to replace the government effectively. Hmm. The NDP in this case has said that it will not do that for three years. Absolutely not. Um, It didn't list any exceptions. It didn't say we won't do it if, unless there's a major scandal, we won't do it unless the Liberal Party does something that we deeply disagree with, declares war, something like that. It doesn't include any exceptions like that. In principle, we can get to what it means in practice. But in principle, in principle, they so in principle they've given carte blanche to the government to do whatever it wants, and that's removed the accountability mechanism that is at the heart of responsible government. So government doesn't have to worry now about being accountable to Parliament for three years. In principle, now Jugmeet Singh 
he did say at the press conference announcing all of this that he's like, okay, we, you know, we've signed this deal, but you know, I, I can really rescind it at any time, and we're still going to be attentive, making sure Trudeau abides by the things we want him to abide by. So, so he would say no that he's left himself many outs. But I guess what I don't really understand is why sign a deal like this, suggesting there aren't going to be any outs between now and 2025, but then also try and say that there will be. I, I mean, I, I don't really understand the argument he's making there. Yeah. So what I just said and and all the stuff about responsible government and the theory and why this, if the agreement is taken at face value, why it could be worse because it it um, evades this process of responsible government and accountability. That's all premised on the agreement actually meaning what it says. Uh, and I think in politics, it's reasonable to um, to hold people accountable to things they put in writing, things they sign, and things that they make clear. And that agreement makes all that clear. Of course, in reality, the agreement could be torn up tomorrow. There's no enforcement mechanism. It's not a formal contract. It's not like your mortgage or a lease or something. Um, of course, it could. But then that just prompts the question, what was the point of the agreement, which right. is your question. So either the agreement is toothless. I wrote this in the article. Either the agreement is actually toothless. And in which case, why are we talking about it? Or it means something, but the NDP has made themselves toothless. Hmm. It's got to be one or the other. And I, I don't know which it is. Time will prove which it is. But it can't be a very important groundbreaking agreement on the one hand, but also be something that can be torn up tomorrow. I find it quite remarkable when you actually read the text of this agreement and it's posted on the prime minister's website. It's written like like it's like it's a platform or like it's a mini throne speech or a mini budget. They say we've made this deal and here are the terms of the deal. We're going to be uh, having our, our different whips meeting and our senior staff meeting on a monthly basis or what have you. And here are all the different items that we're going to be uh, working towards for the next few years. And I'm looking at this. I'm going, this is a very odd kind of document. Like it's it's kind of a platform, but we're not in an election. These are things that the NDP talked about these things during the election, but they are not the first place, not the second place, not the third place party in parliament. So what gives the liberals have suddenly picked it up? Is this a thing that the people should have more of a say in? Yes, ideally. Uh, <laughs> ideally, the people should have uh, as much say as possible in how our governments run um, within the limits of popular control and government expertise on the other hand, and there's a healthy tension between the two. Uh, but yes, I think what you're getting at is nobody voted for this. Um, this is, and this is why I think some people have said the NDP have effectively given Trudeau and the Liberals a majority government without having earned it. Um, mm. So people did not vote for this. Um, and you can't just add up the 32 and a half percent of people who voted for the liberals and the 17 or so percent who voted for the NDP and say, aha, 50 percent, it's a majority. No, because the 17 percent who voted NDP did not vote for liberals and the 32 percent who voted for liberals did not vote for the NDP. Nobody voted for this and uh, nobody voted for well, no 50 percent of Canadians or even enough to get a majority in parliament, which is much less, voted for this plan. 
Now, Howard, I've heard a lot of people say, you can do it. It doesn't break any rules, so what's the problem? But I feel like part of the problem is that because this isn't done often or has pretty much not really been done at the federal level before, people are acclimatized to the way the system functions, immaterial of the technical rules. And while this may technically not violate our democracy, I feel like it violates the spirit of our democratic norms. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. I think that's a really good way of putting it. Um, we have a very strange political system. And as I said, we inherited it from the English and well, the United Kingdom. And it's very equally strange over there. And it's strange in the sense that very few of the rules by which we are governed are actually written down. We have a constitution from 1867 that sort of divides power between the provinces and the federal government. And then we have a charter and a 1982 constitution, which provides sort of a bill of rights and certain other guarantees around language and, and other sort of core uh, substantive matters. But actually how our government works day to day is not written down, um, except in the standing orders of the House of Commons and of the Senate. Um, but those are creations of the House of Commons and the Senate, and they can be changed. Um, what it rests on then is a series of practices and principles and conventions that have grown up over centuries. And at the core of that is this idea that the government, and by government, I have to be very clear about these terms because a lot of these things get used interchangeably. <clears throat> the government in the sense of the executive branch of the cabinet, the people that actually run government day to day, the ministers who run all the ministries, defense, health, transport, that is the government. In the American system, they are outside of the legislature. Hmm. They have the president and the cabinet who exist in their own world. In our system, they are embedded in the legislature. Each minister is a member of the legislature. And this is what the Victorian um, theorist of the Constitution, Walter Badgett, called the efficient secret of the Westminster parliamentary system. And it's efficient because by embedding or partially fusing the government with the legislature, it forces the government to work with the legislature day to day to get its agenda passed. And this healthy tension is produces scrutiny and accountability for the government on a daily basis. And we see this in question period and committees. Um, and this is enforced by sort of a mutual assured destruction policy. It's not a great analogy, but on each side, the government or the legislature, they can end this at any time. The government can go to the crown. If it can't, if, if it's having trouble getting its agenda passed through the legislature, if its policies are not getting through, if it thinks it can't get funding, it can go to the led go to the um, governor general and ask for the legislature to be dissolved and make its case to the people and hope that more members are elected who will support their agenda so they can get it passed in the new legislature after the election. On the other hand, the legislature at any time, if it loses what's called confidence in the government, if it disagrees fundamentally with what the government is doing, it can vote non-confidence in the government, which also triggers an election. So either the legislature or the government can trigger an election at any time. And that produces the incentive for them to work together and the accountability that keeps the government honest. And what the NDP has done here is said, we are not gonna vote no confidence in the government for three years. 
we're not going to move a motion and we're not going to vote for a motion if the conservatives of the block um, raise a motion. So they've essentially removed the accountability mechanism for the government for three years. Um, now, as you said earlier, Jagmeet Singh says he, he, he might still hold them to account, but then that brings us back to the question of what was the point of the agreement. On the terms of the agreement, they are giving the government effectively a pass from accountable government for three years. And that's why I said at the beginning, this could be worse than actual coalition government where the government is still potentially held to account. Now, the NDP has already sent out press releases and messages to to the media, to its supporters, saying this is a great victory for us because the issues that we are passionate about, the things we want to deliver to Canadians are included in this deal. And we will have been able to bring about a dental plan for seniors, for low income Canadians and various other pledges that the NDP has been pushing for. And that is what makes this deal entirely worth it. And I know, Howard, when some people have been talking about this deal, they have not been talking about. Uh, the the sort of back-end components of it, the democratic principles of it. They've just been talking about the policy issues. Can one separate these in the discussion? Should they always be merged? How do you deal with that aspect? The idea of, oh, if we poll Canadians, should there be a dental plan? And you get, okay, 60% say yes, there you go. So this actually greenlights everything that's going on right now. Another good question. Um, I'd say four things, but two are very quick. One, put aside the issue that healthcare is actually largely a provincial responsibility, ah. uh, which the NDP has never seen a national plan they 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 uh, they don't love. I remember seeing promoting once a national bi- biking strategy or something. Right. Anyway, um, so let's put put aside the constitutional uh, division of powers on this issue. Um, let's also put aside the popularity of these things um, because okay, well. Let's put aside the popularity uh, for now. I think it's relevant, and I think we can come back to that um, as, a, as a pure sort of political horse race question about what this means for each party. Um, uh, what, why have the Liberals not done this before? Why are they doing it now? Um, so park that. The two, the two other elements, though, are one, will they actually be able to get these policies through uh, with the Liberal support within three years? Um, and I think while it's possible to lock in some progress on these issues, the wheels of the federal government just don't move fast enough to actually create mm. um, the policies that they're looking for uh, in the short time frame, c- considering all the work that has to be done, coordinating with the provinces, working with Quebec, because as you know, Quebec already has some of these things like farmer care. Um, so I, I think it's, I think the Lib- the, um, the NDP may have sold themselves a bit short on this um, by not then, for example, insisting on saying, well, we want the Minister of Health to be an NDP uh, member so we can actually make sure that progress is made on this. And we can actually hold the government more to account directly within cabinet and be part of the actual governing coalition. That would be a coalition government. So I think the, the NDP has a great press release right now, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they will actually have results by 2025. The other part though, and this gets back to the process that I'm most concerned about and what I wrote about, and that is there's more to government than legislation. In fact, legislation is a very small part of government. Um, what a government does in the House of Commons is very public, but most of what government actually does is done outside of parliament. Um, and I cited examples in, in my article for, so the Declaration of the Emergencies Act, for example, that happened outside of parliament. It's only later that you get accountability or non-accountability in parliament. A dec- going to war 
providing military aid to Ukraine, something the NDP opposed up until very recently. That's done outside Parliament. Setting immigration levels, um, distributing literally tens of billions of dollars of grant money every year. I mean, the way the government actually implements its policies. That's all done outside of, of the House of Commons. Um, and so are bad things. The sponsorship scandal that we remember from the 1990s, that was out, that all happened outside of Parliament. Um, Trudeau's ethics violations happened outside of Parliament. Um, international diplomacy, uh, whether we're being an effective leader on the world stage, that happens outside of Parliament. And we rely on Parliament to actually hold government accountable within the House for all the things it does outside the House of Commons. And by saying that in exchange for a few pieces of legislation, even very important pieces of legislation, the NDP will not vote non-confidence of the government, means that it's not going to hold the government. It's saying it won't help hold the government accountable for all the things that the government does day to day outside the House of Commons. It puts all the focus on pieces of legislation, which as I've said, I think it's unlikely to get that much progress on, in exchange for giving up its oversight role for all the myriad things that ministers, the prime minister, the cabinet, and the government do day to day to run the country. We'll be back with more full comment with Howard Anglin in just a moment. Howard Anglin, one thing that came to mind when I was watching this being announced is who first came up with this idea? Who presented it to who? Was it a liberal idea, an NDP idea? Seems like it was likely a liberal idea. Why do you think the liberals are doing this right now? So the answer I've heard most often is, well, this buys Trudeau peace for three years. A minority government means that you're always on a war footing. You're always worried about an election being called. And this way he can get peace of mind so he can um, he can govern without having to worry about an election for three years. He effectively gets a majority government, as we discussed. Um, <clears throat> I think there's something to that. But as you pointed out, Jagmeet Singh has actually said He's not going to actually give the government a complete pass. He's talking out of both sides of his mouth. He's saying the government gets a pass, the government doesn't get a pass. The realities of politics are if the Liberal government becomes massively unpopular, there's still a good chance we can have an election before 2025. So Trudeau may not have, he may have bought himself peace in the short term, but he doesn't necessarily buy himself three full years. Um, now, so why did they do this? Well, I think, I think it's because... <laughs> put on a slightly partisan hat here, which I try not to do in my commentary. I think the Liberal Party is out of ideas. The Liberal Party mm. is a stale and listless party. It is out of energy. It's out of ideas. What's the last big idea that the Liberal Party had that you can think of? Um, they're out of ideas. The only ideas that are left out there on their side of the aisle, center left to far left, are the NDP's old ideas. Huh. So I think what they've got here is a policy transplant. The, it's an agenda transfusion. Um, it's the political equivalent of a heart or a brain transplant and a blood transfusion from the NDP. <laughs> um, so now what we're left with is this sort of strange, think of like, I'm dating myself here, that old young Frankenstein movie or something. Um, we have a Frankenstein's monster with a liberal body with an NDP brain uh, and blood right now. And like, I, I think that Trudeau is probably okay with this, because deep down, he is more ideologically, intellectually, emotionally aligned with the NDP than he is to the old Chrétien, Martin, let alone Wilfrid Laurier Liberal Party. 
even his dad's liberal party. I mean, there's an irony here that he was a, to put it crudely, he was, he was a, he was chosen as the leader of the liberal party for his name after failures of dealing with the idea of Trudeau was selected because he was a Trudeau and that inspired people. Um, but the irony is that almost as soon as he became the leader, he showed that had he not been born with the last name Trudeau, he probably would be a more natural member of the NDP or the Green Party. And his policies have reflected that. So I think he finally gets to govern with the liberal brand and the NDP Green policies that he actually deep down supports. Howard, to what degree do you think we may be normalizing this idea? Let me present a scenario to you. So I, I know you said that this deal may not stay together uh, up until 2025. Let's say it more or less does and, and things move along and he manages to keep Jagmeet Singh on board. We get up to the election. And right now we have, I guess you can call it a coalition of the winners and that the Liberal government did win the most seats in the House of Commons. We get up to 2025 and then there's an election. And as we know, in the past two elections, the Conservatives won the popular vote uh, under Andrew Scheer first, under Aaron O'Toole second. Uh, and then we get into the 2025 election and the Conservatives win the popular vote again, but the seat distribution is such that they have the most seats in the House of Commons. But the Liberals and NDP still have a lot of seats combined and they go, you know what, we, we're actually kind of liking this arrangement we have. So, you know, we already did this sort of coalition thing for the past uh, few years. Why don't we just sort of kind of keep doing a coalition kind of thing? Is that possible? Not only is it possible, I think that we've already had that for seven years, effectively. Hmm. Um, it just hasn't been formalized. So the Liberals have effectively been governing with the support of the NDP, very occasionally the bloc, but mostly with the support of the NDP for seven years. And I, I, I've seen somebody liken this uh, on Twitter to two people have been living together for seven years and finally decided to actually get married. They're just, they're just formalizing what's <laughs> been the fact for seven years. Um, I'm going to steal that, by the way, for another column. Yeah, that's a good um, analogy. But so, so in that case, I think that the Liberals and the NDP both learned their lesson in 2006 and 2008, um, where they let the Conservative Party under Stephen Harper govern for about five years as a minority. I don't think that the Liberals or the NDP will ever let that happen again. Wow. I think if Harper uh, government had won a minority in 2015 election, they'd come back five seats shy of a majority, they would not have been allowed to govern. I think that the NDP and the Liberals would have joined together to vote no confidence on the uh, throne speech at the first opportunity, and then gone to the Governor General and proposed a something like what is happening now, either a formal coalition government or an informal coalition like this. And so they didn't have to in the end, and the Liberals had a majority, but since then, the Liberals have governed effectively with the support of the NDP. And I think they're quite happy doing that for now. And I think they'll be happy to do that until it starts hurting them politically. And it will start hurting them politically if they find their brand too diluted um, and too many Canadians who, um, as always happens at some point in a democracy, uh, decide it's time to, quote, throw the bums out. And um, that will happen eventually. I think this forestalls that. But in a democracy at the end of the day, um, the government can't govern forever. And, and I think there are dangers to this for the liberal brand as well that will make that more likely probably in the next 
three to five years. Wow. Uh, Howard, I want to get your thoughts on the degree to which Justin Trudeau has has done other procedural things a little differently and that we haven't always known how to make of them initially. I remember when Justin Trudeau banished liberal senators from the Liberal Party. He just sort of dissolved uh, the Liberal Senate caucus that was prior to him becoming prime minister. And we were told it was this sort of brilliant thing and all these arguments. And I thought, I don't know. There's something a little strange about that. That was kind of him banishing the old guard. We've had some other things since he's become prime minister. He violated the Shawcross uh, rule when it came to the SNC-Lavalin issue, uh, getting involved in that deferred prosecution agreement. Uh, we've had invoking the Emergencies Act, which Canadian Civil Liberties Association and others have said, well, hold on, this is this is unlawful. We have this happening now. They're all, I guess you could argue they're minor things one by one. Taken together, I feel like he's really, you know, what they all say, doing politics differently. And I feel like all of these kind of fall slightly into the category of democratic backsliding. I, I don't feel like these things make us more free. I think they make us ever so slightly less free. It's funny, when people say doing politics differently, they usually mean <laughs> it's a positive thing. Um, I think you have to take those one by one and then maybe look at an overall pattern. I, mean, I think you're right. Expelling the liberal senators was very much a signal that this is Justin Trudeau's party. Uh, this is not the Liberal Party, period. This is the Trudeau party. And the banishing of the old guard was a banishing of people who thought that they were liberal senators. Um, and yeah, and I, I think that's part of their remaking the party in his image. Now, the Shawcross Convention, the putting pressure on Jody Wilson-Raybould to um, offer a, effectively a criminal plea deal to SNC-Lavalin, I'd say that, that's, that, that that was a bit of the old Liberal Party showing it, Ted, the old mm. cronyism that got them into trouble um, in the past. Uh, the old, um, the fact that they're beholden to large corporate interests, particularly in Montreal, um, I think that's the old Liberal Party. Huh. Um, and then the Emergencies Act, well, in that sense, he was... It was a diet version of the War Measures Act that his father enacted. And so you can see that as being him following the footsteps of his father. So I think individually, it it's a pattern of events, each of which on its own eats away at the liberal democratic norms of, of our parliamentary system but none of which is so extreme that it on its own necessarily threatens to break that system. Um, I think that this is the way that Trudeau has made the party in his image, both by making him the centerpiece and of all of his elections, um, of his government, of our foreign policy. It's a brand Trudeau party. Um, I think that not only not only have his actions undermined our democratic and parliamentary norms, I think that presidentialization or almost regalization of the Liberal Party itself um, is actually also eating away and undermining the norms of the Liberal Party. And I think there are a lot of disaffected liberals, old, um, probably most liberals over 50, um, who remember the old Liberal Party as, as the great liberal brand who wonder what's going to happen when Trudeau's gone. Does that liberal brand still exist? Or has he so made it his own party that when he goes, the party is effectively left without without a brand? 
Well, let me ask you, there's one complaint that was regularly made against the Stephen Harper government, that there was a centralization of power under the PMO. And there are also things like omnibus bills, which were getting larger and larger, that were also sort of pushing things away from legislators and more towards the PMO. And that now, not that the same people who had made that accusation against Stephen Harper would acknowledge this now, but then I would say that that stuff is just on steroids now with the Trudeau PMO. Uh, what, What would you say about all of that? Yes. I, well, there's certainly been a centralizing tendency in Canadian government that um, the great political scientist Donald Savoy in Canada identifies starting with the um, the first Trudeau government in the 1960s. Um, he's been, Donald Savoy has been a great critic of um, what he calls governing from the center, this um, arrogation of power into the prime minister's office. Um, I think that did happen in the Stephen Harper government. It's happened even more in the Trudeau government, I think far more in the Trudeau government. I think it's also happened though in other Westminster systems, if you look around the world, I think it's certainly happened in um, the same accusations are leveled against number 10 Downing Street, particularly starting with Tony Blair's government. Um, and I think part of that's just a reaction to the uh, the new media environment, particularly a post um, social media environment where government has to be so sensitive to everything that happens at every moment that has to coordinate its actions to a degree um, that wasn't necessary 30, 40, 50, right. 100 years ago. Um, that where you could have ministers freelancing on policy and ministers who are what they call cabinet government, where each minister is his or her own um, little fiefdom that controls everything that happens in the ministry and doesn't have to talk to their colleagues except at cabinet meetings and doesn't have to ever speak to the uh, staffers in the PMO. That, that's a relic of a different era at a time where any um, any uh, inconsistency in policy, any lack of coordination um, is magnified under by our, by our 24-7, not just 24-7, second-by-second media environment. You just, you, you need more coordination. And it's unfortunately driven by by those external circumstances. I, I don't know that it makes for worse government, but it certainly makes for different government. It makes, I think, for a less ambitious government overall. Um, and I think that's a problem. But yeah, it's it's certainly something that's real. It's happened. It happened under the Harper government. And it's, yeah, I, I think no, no PMO in Canadian history has come close to the degree of the stranglehold that the Trudeau government, particularly the early Trudeau government with um, Jerry Butts and Katie Telford, um, effectively being surrogate prime ministers. Um, we've never seen this level of, of, of control before. And I think this, um, this new agreement with the NDP will be interesting in the way it tests that. Um, I think trying to bring the NDP partly into the fold um, may have interesting consequences for that. I don't, I don't know how that will play out, but, um, but it, 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 could, uh, it could throw a, a wrench into the works there. What do you think are the ramifications of this for the Conservatives? Whoever wins the Conservative leadership race later on this year was maybe hoping, okay, we're in a minority government situation. It would be great to do what they do in the U.S. and sort of have the primaries roll into the general. I get all that momentum and here I am now. I'm Prime Minister of Canada. Uh Uh-uh, not going to be that easy. Won't happen that way. you got to sit in... uh, in, in Stornoway for several years now in 2025, sort of biding your time, doing whatever you're going to do, and then you'll eventually have an election sometime later on down the road. Is this a, a positive thing in terms of the Conservative caucus being able to have time to retool, rebuild, go in a different direction? Or does it is it just a negative thing in terms of the fact they're left treading water for a while? 
<laughs> we'll see. Uh, honestly, uh, you, you probably follow this uh, more closely day to day than I do, Anthony. Um, my backseat thoughts for what they're worth are that in the medium term, this will be good for the Conservative Party. I think that this Frankenstein's monster that I spoke of earlier, where you have this liberal body with an NDP brain now, um, I, I think that's a a, a good large um, target for the Conservative Party. You can accuse the Liberals of being of all the sins of the NDP, and you can accuse the NDP of having all the sins of, of the Liberal Party. Um, it's a, I think it's going to be a difficult, a more difficult agreement to implement than either party thinks right now. Um, the happiest time for a lot of contracts and agreements is the moment they're signed, and they often fall apart quite quickly afterwards, and particularly in politics. We saw this with the planned coalition back in 2008, where everybody thought it was a great idea on the day, and a couple months later, Stefan Dion was out as liberal leader. Right. Uh, and Harper managed to pass a, a budget with the support of Michael Ignatieff's interim leadership. I, I, I could see this lasting little while and falling apart. I could see it falling apart quite quickly. Mm. I don't think that the NDP and the Liberals would be that as happy with each other in 2025 if it lasts this long, that long as they are today. And I think that will create a, an internal dynamic that will distract them from governing and will weaken the government and uh, improve the chances of the Conservatives. So, but we still don't know who the Conservative leader is going to be. We don't know if Trudeau is going to lead the Liberals into the next election. I mean, I think those two things are more important than this agreement for the next election. Right. Um, and until we know that, I don't think we can really say anything too definitive. Howard, let me ask you in terms of what this agreement might create in terms of public appetite for the direction the Conservative Party should go, by which I mean there are some who have said, well, you've got this coalition government thing happening, Liberal NDP. It clearly suggests that uh, that Canadians are going to be normalized into this sort of thing and they're going to need a more red Tory type person. Jean Charest is going to have to be leader because there's no way uh, after what they've had with the Trudeau-Singh coalition, they're going to go in a different direction. Or one can say the other thing, which is people are going to want something that differentiates itself from the previous offering. So you're going to want someone who's a more true blue conservative. I mean, I think the fact that we went from Stephen Harper majority to Justin Trudeau majority and, uh, you know, uh, Stephen Harper is definitely not described as a sort of red Tory figure and Justin Trudeau is not described as a right leaning uh, liberal. That was quite a, a jump there to go from one to the other. Could we see the appetite for the same thing in 2025? I think absolutely we could. Um, I think when people start talking about spatial metaphors in politics, they get to a level deeper than um, than how most politics works. This idea that if this moves the liberals to the left, it will open up space in the center for somebody to fill or for the conservatives to move to the center. I don't think I look. I'm not a campaigner. I'm I'm not a political strategist in that sense. I don't think that's how politics works in when it comes to electoral politics. I think people like distinctions and differentiation more than they think about things like, well, who's moving to fill space that's being vacated by another party? Um, so I, I do think that the Conservatives have an opportunity to really distinguish themselves, particularly when you think about the spending that this is going to require. Um, put aside the popularity of the policies. And I actually think it's crazy that we don't cover dental care and prescription drugs in Canada under our healthcare system. Um, that's a discussion for another time. I think the government, provincial government should have done this a while ago, but that to the side, the spending 
when then you add in our newfound defense commitments, which Trudeau's now gone to Europe and said that we're going to up our defense spending, like where's the money coming from? Right. At a time when inflation is threatening to hit double digits, um, it's absolutely crazy. And I think a conservative party that can present itself on its historical strength of prudent fiscal management, discipline, being serious about things like inflation and spending, I think that differentiation works massively in the conservatives' favor going forward. And I think the conservative party would do well to whoever becomes the leader, uh, they would do well to to emphasize the distinctions uh, with this coalition rather than trying to sort of be clever and move in and fill some mushy center. Howard, before we go, I want to get your thoughts on the long-term ramifications for Canadian democracy and where you think we're headed, because it does seem like we can't put the genie back in the bottle when it comes to things like invoking the Emergencies Act at a time when, well, maybe it wasn't actually warranted, creating this sort of quasi-coalition, non-coalition. And and you said the Liberals are undermining our democratic and parliamentary norms. They've had a few examples of doing that. We were originally thinking that we would have a sort of very calm democratic process. I always think back to that Francis Fukuyama end of history thesis, but now we see, no, things are changing. You mentioned how social media 24 hour news cycle uh, makes governments react faster, sometimes more hastily. We've got rules being slightly bent here and there. What's going on? What's the future going to bring? <laughs> Wrap it all knew, up in a bow only, for us. <laughs> bring out the crystal ball. Okay. Um, I think in a democratic system and in our parliamentary system, at the end of the day, the people do get to decide. And that is the constant. And I think that for a long time, we've been very complacent as a country and our voters have been complacent. We get really worked up about issues. I'm not saying that some of the fights we've had politically in the last 10, 20, or even 30 years haven't been important. Right, right, they, right. they are. They're very important. But they're not, they haven't been existential. And not even existential in the sense of will Canada continue to exist? Um, we actually had that in 1995, I guess. Um, but in the sense of, do people really feel that their lives are changing in a bad way, seriously, and are threatened? We've had that in parts of the country, um, the oil and gas um, uh, recession in, in, in Alberta starting in about 2014, really changed people's lives in a deep way. Um, but in most of the country, things have been getting maybe a little bit worse slowly, but a little bit better in other ways. And people haven't really felt that the, the, the a, a crisis. And I think now, starting probably um, the last two years with COVID, I think people now look out and they see crises everywhere. They see a once in a century pandemic. They see inflation potentially returning to early 1980s levels right. where they won't be able to afford their mortgage payments. You see young people who look out and say they won't be able to afford a job that will allow them to actually ever own a house, even own, own an apartment or a condo in a city like Vancouver or Toronto. Um, and then you look out at, at the world affairs and you see uh, the rise of, of Chinese power and under uh, President Xi and PRC, um, this sinister surveillance state, some of which aspects are, are slowly creeping into our own society. Um, and then they look at uh, Europe which has sort of been the fun uh, holiday destination for the last 50 years and the potential threat of nuclear war on its border. Um, when things get really, really, really bad, I think it can shake up our politics. Um, so 
while this agreement is interesting, we'll see how it plays out. I think far more important for the next election and probably the election after that will be if people really think that their livelihood and their way of life are are fundamentally threatened, then I think that provides an opportunity for each party to present a very clear philosophical platform um, and make the pitch to Canadians about how what they have to offer will make their lives more secure, more stable, more prosperous, more free. These, these are these are the things we've come to take for granted in Canada and suddenly can't. And I think that that offers the Conservative Party a real opportunity to go back to first principles and and remind Canadians that the society that we have is not an accident. It's based on certain philosophical premises. Um, you can call them um, conservatism. Some people call parts of it classical liberalism, whatever. Um, and one of those is that our institutions like parliament function as they are meant to function. And that means that the government is held accountable day to day. And that brings us back to this point that the NDP have effectively ceded their scrutiny and accountability role here. That's a problem for parliament. It's a problem for our country, but it's a potential opportunity for the Conservative Party uh, to take parliament seriously, to take its responsibility in opposition seriously, as the NDP is not, and to present to Canadians a clear vision of uh, a Canada that will be an island of stability in a world of calm, uh, sorry, in a world of chaos. Um, and Stephen Harper did that very successfully uh, during the global financial crisis, which frankly looks like a blip compared to what we're going through now. Mm. And I think um, the next Conservative leader has an opportunity to do that again for a new generation of Canadians in 2015 or earlier. Interesting points and a very interesting conversation. Howard Anglin, Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Anthony. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Prue with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. And you can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.